Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Excited to talk with you uh, in the context of our show, Why Are Dads, which is what people are listening to right now. <laughs> I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're here right now. We're going to talk about some dads. And I made a joke on Twitter because someone was wondering something about dads. And I was like, I can talk about why our dads. And someone was like, I appreciate you're saying that, but you've never explained why our dads. Like, why are the dads? Oh. And I was like, yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet, have we? I think the best we've said is that dads are because dads. Mm. Why are dads? Because dads. <laughs> I'm at the stage in my life where I passively do enough hallucinogenic drugs and listen to Ram Dass videos. Listen to this three-hour Ram Dass lecture. And he said uh, this really great thing where he was talking about how, you know, we were born and then some people who are our parents tried their best to tell us how to be people mm. because in their view, they're very good at being people. We, we all got the bad lesson in peopleship starting from the beginning, which we spend the rest of our lives trying to undo. Or just like they don't think they're good at it, but they're like, this is the only way, basically. Like my people lesson yes. was like fear everyone and everything. Don't go into the world like other people will only hurt you. Just like make your little handhold in the crevice and hunker in there until it's all over. And I was like, I really don't think yes. that's true, but I know that you think that's true and not unreasonably so in many ways. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was talking with our friend Chelsea from American Hysteria about this and about sort of how we become who and why we are. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, even the people who have the fondest memories of their parents, the process of becoming a person under the instruction or abilities of other people is itself inherently a traumatic thing. Mm. And when we say trauma, I think we often think debilitating mm -hmm. and rightfully so, but not that it is essentially a binder or a binding that leaves a mark that we need to spend a lot of time reassessing. Mm. And I think often people listen to the show, I think, are looking for assessments of of dads, which mm. which we say in the title, which is uh, sort of what we do. But more than anything else, we kind of talk about how and why we are and the, the circumstances that led to that. I like how I've offered now two shows that kind of promise something specific in the title, which I have no intention of offering. There's <laughs> the show that promises to judge you and the show that promises to address dads. And in both cases, you get through the door and I'm like, Welcome to the party, and now we're going to talk about my feelings. Here's, Sarah, here's the thing that actually happened. Mm -hmm. So I had a party in 2003. This was such a epitome of hipster handbook time in parties. I had a party. It was called the Communist Party, and everyone came dressed as their favorite communist. <laughs> That's great. And then there was a knock on the door. I was well into party time by this time. I remember my friend was driving up from Rhode Island and I gave her $430, which is probably 97% of all of the money I had on hand at that point. Yeah. And she bought, I don't know if you know what Mickey's are, but they're little malt liquor bottles in, in Green Grenade. Oh yeah. That's what Ted Bundy used to drink. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. She bought, she bought $430 in Mickey's oh to bring God. them to the party. So that's where this party was at. That's 
helping your fellow worker. That is helping your fellow worker. So there was a knock at the door and this guy, John, John Bronson, who is the editor of the student newspaper, went to go get the door at, at this party. And four actual card carrying Yugoslavian communists were at the door to come to the communist party because they'd heard <laughs> that it was happening. Oh, and they just came and partied with us. Aww. They were in their 50s, and one of them went on to become my mentor at the university. <laughs> That's wonderful. And it's like, I also feel like a lot of your stories have some kind of ending where it's like, and that dog is now my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, we say it's a communist party. You get in the door, you find out it's another thing, and hopefully you have fun. It's a bunch of college students from Maine jumping around. <laughs> but that's pretty good, too. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about 10 Things I Hate About You. Tell us a bit about what stood out in this episode for you. Yeah, this was a really fun episode, and I feel as if I haven't heard the rough cut of it yet, and I don't even know what's going to be in it, because we talked for a couple hours, and we really had, you know, we went in a a lot of different directions but we did zero in on the dad theme in this because this movie is really held together plot wise by larry miller playing the dad and i was also thinking that like this is an unusually non-villainous role for him like especially in the 90s he was really you know getting by playing jerks mm. and here he's playing someone who has given a lot of dialogue that could be played jerkily but he's always endearing. Like he never comes across as like a scary authoritarian. Like he's he's always played for laughs and he isn't someone who's, you know, really seems to have power over his daughters. Like they're following his rules because because they are willing to do that. But like you don't get the sense that he's crushing their spirits, which I appreciate in a dad. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and I, I we talked in this episode about how I think this movie is so charming for so many reasons. And one of them, I think, is that all of the characters grow like the characters who progress forward in this movie and find relationships and end the movie like happier, less lonely, closer to their true selves than they were in the beginning are people who are willing to grow and are willing to hear what other people have to say to them that about them being hypocritical or acting in ways that aren't serving them or the people they love. And, and these people listen. It's great to see any teen movie that doesn't transparently kind of hate teens. And so like this movie was already <laughs> going to come out ahead of a lot of other movies. But I think that's a theme that we don't really get enough generally. And I love talking about how it's here. I didn't appreciate that before. And talk a bit about our, our special guest today and, and what your relationship is uh, with Sam Preeti. Our special guest, Sam Preeti, is one of the last people I met before we had a pandemic, or actually like the first new person I met, the first new friendship that I like entered into before all this ended or all this began or whatever, whatever happened, whatever happened. She was one <laughs> of the last people I met <laughs> uh, before things changed and... I feel as if like the best way to describe it is that like I have suspected that I invented her straight out of my mind in a like Paul Bettany kind of way because we have weekly calls where we talk and write together and we sort of are creative helpers to each other. And I always suspect that when someone is being nice to me, I must have invented them. <laughs> but no, she's real and you talk to her. And you're real, too, because other people have talked to you. 
So I'm definitely not all by myself on doing, like, I mean, if this were all imaginary, then I would be capable of, like, incredible voice acting and editing. So that's obviously not the case, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I had a great time. It's interesting. Like, I didn't know much about Sam Preeti outside of you suggesting she would be good. You explained all this. And she was so perfect for this episode. I I mean, her energy Mm. is fantastic as it is. And and she's just such a, a warm and lovely person. Yeah. And she's an astrologer. And we talk about that in this episode. This is our second astrologer guest. And I think that is also one of the themes that I feel like is sort of present in our conversations and our friendship is like, how do we sort of find this abundant flow of love and relationships in sort of the rinky dink seeming daily life, which is where all of this really is all the time. Yeah, that's where we're going to go. What is your last bit of 10 things hype to get people ready for this episode? We talk about exactly what Kat's musical tastes seem to be, which I think is an important thing to cover. So, (laughs) and we talk a lot about Heath Ledger and just this episode is also kind of a love letter to Heath Ledger and... I'm happy we did that. Yeah, if you if you listening, I mean, we, we talk a bit, you will hear in the episode, but we talk, as Sarah just said, about how Kat's musical tastes are portrayed in this movie versus what they might actually be. Yeah. So we would love to hear your take about what you think Kat was actually listening to in 1999. Yeah. In 2000 or whatever this was. It was 1999, but it's confusing because their prom theme is blasting into 2000, but like they're not because it's oh, next yes. year. So I don't know. <laughs> that would have been a better like winter formal theme, but it's a great movie. That's its only flaw. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do it. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. Romantic? Hemingway? He was an abusive alcoholic misogynist who squandered half his life hanging around Picasso trying to nail his leftovers. As opposed to a bitter, self-righteous hag who has no friends? Pipe down, Chachi! You look pretty nervous. You're sweating like a pig. Your eyes are all bloodshot. Yes, sir. You've got pop, don't you? Is that a peach fruit roll-up? Because you don't see many. Oh, oh, okay. Stop making my decisions for me. I'm your father, that's my right. So what I want doesn't matter. You're 18, you don't know what you want. And you won't know what you want until you're 45. And even if you get it, you'll be too old to use it. Judith! What's another word for engorged? I'll look it up. I hate it when you're not around and the fact that you didn't call. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. Hey everybody, real quick, I just want to let you know that Wired Dads is made possible with financial support from Knack Factory, which is a commercial video and content production company based in Portland, Maine, but does work throughout all of these here, United States and elsewhere, actually. And by you, we receive a lot of great support via Patreon at patreon.com slash Dads. We appreciate it. If you're in the position to help give a few bucks a month to make Wired Dads possible, thank you so much. Thanks for doing that. And over on Patreon, you can find pretty consistent consistent bonus episodes, mostly weekly. And if you are not able to uh, support right now, we're just happy that you're along for the ride. Thank you so, so much for joining us. That's enough of that kind of housekeeping. Let's get into 10 things I hate about you. Sarah Marshall. Hello. Yes. Hello. Every show is exciting for a different reason. Why is today's show exciting? We have a very special guest. 
Very special guest, please introduce yourself. Hello, I am very special lucky guest, Sanpreeti. Nice to see you guys. Oh, nice to see you. Thanks for hanging with us. Do you have anything else to share with us if people would like to enjoy more of your stylings? Yes, if uh, you couldn't get enough of my off-the-cuff astrological diagnostics, you can check me out on Patreon. It's Astro Geomantica, uh, A-S-T-R-O-G-E-O-M-A-N-T-I-C-A. And, and Sampriti, what are we going to watch, or what did we watch, and what will we discuss? We are going to be watching 10 Things I Hate About You, and when Sarah asked me to, uh, if it was a good time to come on, because we, we try to bond as much as possible, and we've been kind of excited about bonding over the podcasting experiment. Mm -hmm. And she said, just send a bunch of movies, you know, just send some movies that are meaningful. And I sent you like 15 different movies ranging from like Pulp Fiction to <laughs> to, to 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm -hmm. And I was honestly initially surprised that this was the one that was chosen. And interestingly enough, initially I was like, well, I want a serious movie. I want a, a movie that, you know, that's impactful and like deep and, and serious. And then I rewatched the movie and I'm like, oh, mm. that's right. That's why I love this movie so much. <laughs> One of the things we've learned to this point is if you want people to listen to the episode, you don't want it to be too serious. You, yes. you absolutely want a movie that's lodged into someone's popular memory for a reason they don't exactly know why and they want to come and, and hear about why it might be and I I had the same experience that you did where I, I remembered this movie of course but then until I watched it I was like oh yeah this is not only a time <laughs> capsule but there's a shitload of things going on here. Sarah what what was your experience with this beforehand? Oh, I mean, this movie is just like, I know this whole thing by heart. Like this is one of the movies that I probably saw for the first time in eighth grade and just immediately loved because A, I thought it was cool that they were doing a Shakespeare homage, which there were like kind of a lot of in the 90s, you know? <laughs> and then there was the amazing Much Ado About Nothing with Keanu Reeves in it, which sounds like it wouldn't be great, but it is great. <laughs> it is. And it's just this masterpiece of like Kenneth Branagh sort of knowing which popular actors to cast in his Shakespeare thing. Mm. And everyone's seeming like they're having a great time and getting very tan. <laughs> but what I also think I always loved about this movie, and I was thinking about how it's kind of unfair to praise it first for what it isn't, but like this just seems so relevant, is that it doesn't talk down to teenagers. Like this is a very well-written movie and it doesn't, seem to be written or made from the perspective that teenagers are like these gross, scary, confusing humping machines, <laughs> which I think a lot of media ostensibly for teenagers is is telling them. And like the kids in this are like are witty. And I always loved that. <laughs> and I think it's interesting that the dad in the movie embodies what you just described. Mm. He's the person who is assuming that kids are all humping, impregnating machines. Yeah. You know, his role in the movie is that 
what exactly what you you're describing Mm -hmm. despite the fact i hadn't seen this movie in a while like i have fond memories of being a person of a time with this movie being around Mm -hmm. sampriti and i were talking before we started about like the tattoos that we have and i just came to the realization that i have all of these tattoos that i got kind of closer to when this movie came out (laughs) and i'm now probably closer no not probably I am much closer in age to the dad in this movie (laughs) and so we were just saying like we don't feel older when we think about ourselves just in our own context but we do when we think about ourselves in the generation younger and the generation older and so it's interesting to watch this movie from the perspective of someone who like still feels these kids like Mm. I felt Kat's whole struggle which I will talk about in a big way which is like you are Kat (laughs) ah Yeah, I felt Cat's struggle in the same way I felt it when I watched this movie in the late 90s, early, two, it must be 2000, I think. Yeah, this came out in 99 or 2000, yeah. 99. Yeah, their prom is something 2000. 99, okay, yeah. Blasting into 2000. A great little bubble of teen movies. Yes. Exactly, when we were looking forward to the millennium, to the millennium. Yes. Yeah, which we did for like, I guess, a year and a half. Exactly. And then we were like, ah, <laughs> oh, fuck it, take us back. I also feel for her dad, who is absurd in so many ways and summarizes so many of the issues that we talk about with men, but it's illustrated pretty clearly at some point because people narrate it to him that he is the way that he is because he has no form of feelings of control in his own life. So he's exerting Mm -hmm. that desire for control of the people around him and from a messy, messy, caring place. And we can talk about why we think his wife left in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's go there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, well, can we do our, um, I, I feel like this is so fun to try and do for this movie. What is 10 things I hate about you about? What is it? Because mm. if you're pitching this back in the mid, in the late mid 90s, like this is not perhaps something that would have been received with great excitement by necessarily every single meeting you, you described it in. It makes me realize why we talk, why like teen movie was itself a genre. It was like, you can just go and see people who look kind of like you and there'll be like interesting, quirky pop music that you'll recognize. But they're 25 and Mm -hmm. their skin is perfect. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It was shorthand. So you didn't have to fucking explain the plot of one of these movies. Like how... Outside of just explaining taming, taming of the shrew, like how would you describe <laughs> how would you describe what this movie is, Sampriti? Cosmically, like starting there, I would describe this as as somebody's magnum opus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The the creators, the writers of this movie, this was their best work. Yes. I can't say empirically if it was, but they did so much with this, and they did with this work, they did exactly what they were supposed, like capital S, supposed to do, <laughs> and. Personally, so we'll go from the, like the cosmic right down to the personal. I was 17 when this movie came out. I was actually I just turned 18, mm-hmm. and I was watching it at the time. I had no idea that I was in this living situation, like this. I had the father figure that 
did this, like with no comedy. Mm-hmm. I was as sheltered as sheltered could be. So there was an, an element of escapism in all the teen movies, but especially as mm-hmm. th- in this movie, because I did Shakespearean plays. I read Shakespeare. Also, there was the, the Jane Austen influx mm. in the mid to late 90s, too. And I spoke in a, you know, Jennifer Ely, Pride and Prejudice, banter-type rhythm more mm. often than I didn't between the years of 1996 and, and 2000. Are you able to do that now, still? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> And now I'm like, oh, my God, did we have this Jane Austen bubble because Colin Firth was so sexy that, like, yes. as we learned in, in Bridget Jones, the streets of Britain would clear out so people could go home to watch Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> and everyone was like, we got to get a piece of that Darcy yes. pie. Oh, my God. Yes, the force that is Colin Firth. I mean, you can't stop him. Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, one, I want us to always from now on cover movies from the cosmic to the personal. Like I want that to be a paradigm <laughs> yeah. that we use from now on. But second, Sarah, just walk us through an elevator pitch of the plot. Like what did mm-hmm. what did Kiki Smith say is going to happen in this movie when she was pitching it around? Yeah, if I were Kiki Smith and if I were able to pitch the movie as it ultimately ended up being, I would be like, okay, you guys, <laughs> this movie is a modern adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew, a play that has never really worked and that Shakespeare people don't really (laughs) seem to perform all that much, or they do it as a weird challenge, but that does flourish an adaptation. Kiss Me, Kate, one of the only classic Broadway musicals made into a movie that doesn't feel incredibly weird. (laughs) Why? The the strange magic of adapted shrew. And this is what we're going to have. We're going to transplant it to a high school in Tacoma, Washington. It's going to be about two beautiful teenage girls, the young, nice one, and the older, equally beautiful, but complicated one. One could say shrew-like. <laughs> one could say shrewish. One could. And uh, she doesn't want to date. Her little sister does. And her dad, who is terrified of both of them dating, is like, aha, I will change the rules from no dating till you graduate to Bianca can date if cat dates. A new student, Cameron, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, enrolls in Padua High and first befriends a character whose name I forget, who's played by the wonderful David Crumholtz. And mm. I just always am like, there's David Crumholtz. And he's the best. He decides to help Cameron to win the heart of the beautiful Bianca, who is not allowed to date. And so in order to crack the code, they devise a scheme where Cameron will plant the idea in the head of Joey Donner, the rich underwear model, who can therefore back their plan to liberate Bianca by liberating Kat, Joey will use his modeling money to pay a student named Patrick Verona, who is Australian and therefore not afraid of anything, um, (laughs) played by Heath Ledger, who created one million dreams of the ideal man, some Mm. of which have shaped the lives of the people who then ended up finding their own Patrick someday. And so he takes out Kat, and then that's sort of how the whole plot gets set in motion. That's it. Well done. That was a long (laughs) elevator ride, but you made it happen. 
And then everybody ends up with the right person, the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then the band plays on the roof. Yes. And yeah. that's the ending scene. Feelings are hurt for like 30 seconds in this movie, which I like a lot. Like, hmm. you know how in like Notting Hill, there's like the feelings hurt piece, and then there's like a Bill Withers song, and it's like at least an act and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and also that he walks through the seasons. Right, yes. exactly. Like in high school, you just you got like two months before graduation <laughs> at most, you know. I was shocked by that, that it was like the next morning when they are <laughs> like, oh, how's, how's Kat you? She's looking sad on the porch, which, by the way, yeah. Seattle is never that sunny for that many days in a row. <laughs> it's just nothing interesting happened when it was raining, and that's the downtime <laughs> they used to like process. This is true. They had to get their vitamin D. But it was like literally the day after the prom yeah. that they got some some closure on it. Those kids are resilient. They are. <laughs> I was watching this and I kept wondering if I had missed the drama. <laughs> At some point, you know, the chips get called in and this kid has to explain being involved in a bet and all this stuff. Like I had 13 minutes left, including the credits. So like I had like an easy seven minutes left and then they just zip right by it. It was a relief, actually. I was like, thank God we didn't have to deal with that shit. <laughs> <laughs> to watch teenagers screaming at each other like I would really much rather watch them like get vulnerable and buy each other guitars <laughs> and read poems in class to each other yes oh my god can someone just sum up who Kat is and what her whole vibe and approach and maybe arc looks like in this movie um, Kat is one of the most fleshed out feminists, in my opinion, of 90s cinema, mm -hmm. and she gets to be a teenager. We don't find out until towards the end of the movie in the third act that her behavior has been shaped from some past mistreatment and some past trauma. Mm -hmm. You can tell right away that she's very decisive in her ethics, and she's very decisive in how she is going to embody herself in high school. Cool, guys like I'm almost 39 and I'm just maybe figuring this out she doesn't give a fuck what anybody else thinks also mm -hmm. she also loves she's not a stone-cold bitch just because she has boundaries mm -hmm. so she is getting some pressure or she her sister's trying to exert pressure on her to start dating because of dad's stipulation to the rule no dating rule and then she gets this man man boy Patrick comes into her life and starts like trying to get her attention. They found the one high schooler who's like 22 or something. <laughs> yes. Accounts for a lot. Exactly. <laughs> His voice is like that because of all the cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> and so they have some, they have some chemistry and he wins her over not because he's him, but because he lets her be himself and he holds space for her. Mm. Throughout her arc, she's able to exhibit nuance as a fully fleshed out teenage girl. And it's never a surprise to her. Mm -hmm. I never got in the movie that she surprises herself with her feelings, that she surprises herself mm. with her, her multifacetedness. Mm. She takes life and she meets it head on with 100% herself. And in the end, she gets everything she wants. She gets to go to Sarah mm -hmm. Lawrence. She gets the guy. She gets the guitar. She gets the guitar. <laughs> Most important part. And maybe a drum leader. Yes, yeah. yes. There's more. There's yeah. more. 
I was also watching this and I was like, I cannot overestimate how much this influenced like my fan fiction stylings hmm. in my teen years. The guy like kisses you repeatedly to stop you objecting, but it's like, okay, you're like, yeah, okay, this is the best way to conclude this argument. <laughs> I wrote that three or four times. I was like, that that's just a cool move. I don't love it as much now, but it's yeah. <laughs> There's some great kissing. I that I noticed that this last time too. It was like they're hot. So key for a teen movie. <laughs> They've got some great, great kissing going on. Because so many teen actors, you, like, watch them kiss, and you're like, I feel nothing. Like, yeah. I mean, it would be inappropriate for me to feel things today. But as a teen, you're like, <laughs> these are just two focus-grouped, symmetrical heads that are sort of rubbing against exactly. each other. <laughs> the thing that I was surprised by with Kat this go-round, and I think that, like, it's something that I can only notice now for a lot of the reasons we've talked about, is, yes, I feel like this is the person I was kind of most like in high school, although I was I was a little more, I was a little more affable, I would say. I think just because I'm big, I'm tall, like, nothing was ever intimidating. I'm a big man, right? So, like, I didn't have to put up the mm. same sort of front to defend from specific sorts of vulnerability. You didn't have to knee guys in the balls all the time. <laughs> exactly. Like that itself was never an issue. But the thing that I noticed in this viewing is the connection to her trauma was so important because we learned that Kat is this way and she kind of says her ideology to Ledger, whose name I don't even know in this movie. What is Heath Ledger's name in this movie? Patrick Verona. She says to Patrick, basically, she doesn't want to like things that other people expect her to like. Mm. And so as a result, she has this outlook that I kind of had when I was a kid where it was like, I was a Christian until I was like 12. I felt burned by the overall church, so I decided to believe nothing which isn't like mm. another belief system. It's just an absolute oppositional belief system. And that kind of formed mm. my approach to everything. Like I became, I became very activisty as a result, but I also became like kind of a nihilist and then realized that that was a defense. Like that was a defense from ever caring about specific stuff, ever letting anything in kind of being salty to make sure that people didn't get in. I still have a lot of that leftover that I'm, I'm working on now, mm. but we learned this about Kat, that this happened because, you know, she was in a relationship with this D-bag, Joey, who is not great. She had sex with him. There's so much to unpack there because the dad is so focused on the younger daughter not having sex and overlooked the fact that his eldest daughter already had sex. Yeah. I noticed that. And so there's that. But, like, she then, in connecting all of that and having this opportunity at the end of the movie who she's met with and met somebody, as, as Simpriti said, there's not like this grand realization that she's like, I can and I should have this. She just kind of transfers out of this place where she's calloused mm. almost as her personality to protect herself to letting herself have something, which is so nice. Mm. And I hope she gets a poster for her room that was not provided by the um, record company at some point. I hope she gets some <laughs> stuff for herself. That would be really nice. But no, it's it's nice to see her kind of open up. I had that realization at like 33. She had it in the third act of this movie. So I'm really happy for her to get a running start. Mm-hmm. I'm happy for you that you got your God stuff out of the way at 12. That's really <laughs> impressive. Thanks. Although I will say, I mean, I whatever, you follow the journey that you need to follow and that's fine and that's great. But like if I could go back to my 12-year-old self, I would be like, hey, you don't have to discount exploring everything because this one faith tradition ruined a lot of stuff about your life and your family's life. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm glad I landed there at 33 or 34, whatever. I'm glad I yeah. landed where I landed. And this is what I recognize in Kat, this go around. I spent a lot of time not letting specific things in because I let one thing in once and it was bad. And the good outcome is that I didn't have to deal with God a lot or Joey. <laughs> well, at- <laughs> there we go. There's a win. I think, you know, force has to meet force. Mm. I have recovering evangelical Christian, Catholic, all of that stuff. And we have to put up, especially as youngins, you know, we do have to put up a a strong, forceful front because mm-hmm. that's the amount of force that came at us from, you know, in vitro. Yes. We can kind of chill, but sometimes it takes a couple of decades to, like, be able to chill around that. And when you're 12, it's not like, let me take a nuanced pivot to my relationship with the higher power. Like sometimes all you can do is fight fire with fire and then figure it out later. Well, I feel like so much depends on whether, whether you are a child whose parent or parents believe that you are supposed or allowed to have boundaries mm-hmm. or whether that's a foreign concept or it's like, I'm aware of that concept and I think it is bad, which I think is really common for for kids in America. Can you talk about boundaries, Sarah, in the context of uh, Kat's dad in this movie? And and what his boundaries are, if any? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so one thing they do mention that I was kind of noticing this time is that Kat had sex with Joey the one time when she was dating him for a month, like around the time their mom left. Yes. Right? I think she said it was right after. And so you feel as if like, okay, Potentially this guy maybe was like really out of the game for a while there because like it's a weird situation for like a mom to suddenly leave two adolescent girls and to just be the non-custodial parent forever apparently like she's and we know she's not dead she's just she's gone she left i was impressed they didn't kill her off yeah it's shocking me too because it was initially they could have gone either way and then they're like no she left <laughs> they were like what would full house do yeah <laughs> kill her in a car accident they do and they're like no this lady just like for whatever reason like Government secret agent, Mm. horrible affair, unable or unwilling to take care of kids, you know, whatever. Like, she's gone. And you can just imagine, you know, as a very tightly wound physician, people who are notorious for processing their their emotions, that maybe, you know, Kat and Bianca's dad just was not running a tight ship there for a while and is running an Mm. overly tight ship now as a way to compensate for that. And even if we know that's not the case, we know that he's imposing these rules on his daughters, you know, out of his sort of terror at what the world is based on how he experiences it as an obstetrician. (laughs) You know, that's him taking his baggage and projecting it onto his girls literally in the case of making bianca wear the belly before she goes to the party (laughs) she knows they know like they are ready to go to a party they know more than anyone has ever known before going to a party about how pregnant they could get what's one more belly wear gonna do for you now (laughs) i i love that we've entered into this part of the conversation where like we can we can start talking about how parents inform or do not inform their kids about sex. Like, mm. how is sex framed in the the upbringing? Did the mom leave because of sex? Oh, 
You know she did. I mean, that was the plot twist in Hell House, so. <laughs> it was. This is pitched in one of two ways that I feel like can be interpreted, right? One is he now has control issues because his life fell apart and he's a doctor and he's a constantly interrupted in one way or another. And clearly he has no control because his personal life fell apart. The other, which was my read, and I don't I don't know, when, and I'm sure on some level sex had something to do with it, but uh, my read is that he has been like this the whole time. And if you were his wife, how could you even deal with like how could you deal with this the way that this man is oh yeah cannot believe i've seen this movie as many times as i've seen and had not put together that like my mom also left our house and i kept living with my dad and i had to live with the dad it was more complicated and nuanced than what's presented here but i never thought about the fact until sarah you just said all that yeah that i had to live with this man who already made it impossible for my mom to live with us. But I had I had to keep living with him. You know? <laughs> oh my God, yes. Because <laughs> kids don't notice how weird you are in quite exactly. the same way. We're just surviving. Or if they do, they, they can't just leave. Yeah, that's the thing about kids. They can't just leave. No. Especially in like 90s nuanced divorce conversations. There's so much that's different about the 90s as presented in this movie compared to kids now. It's like it's like, does she listen to Katie Lang? Meaning is she gay? Is she's, yeah. If she's gay, mm -hmm. like she won't fuck with you. You know, kids now, whatever. Kids now will fuck anyone. But... <laughs> Um, and that's great for them. I'm not saying that in a negative way. But the divorce conversation then was basically like, we're going to get a divorce, which itself was revolutionary because 20 years before that, you'd basically get burned at the stake. And we're going to get a divorce. This is going to happen. But no one explained it's because your dad's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they'd be like, it's not your fault. It's because your mom is overwhelmingly neurotic and weighed down with all the shit from her childhood and she hasn't resolved any of it and she shouldn't have married an old man yeah and the old man is difficult that's why it happened that would have been helpful information mm -hmm. uh, as a kid looking at through cat's perspective outside of just here's me projecting now all of my issues onto you with regard to control fortunately these girls had the perspective to understand that that's happening because i never had any of that well here we are again in that conversation around respecting our children who in this aspect are not children they're teenagers yes. they're closer to adults and children as fully formed intellects yes you know how about we err on the side of them being most emotionally mature yes. instead of like literal babies mm -hmm. and meeting them at that space damn so you just had that revelation like in real time right now I talk about this a lot in one context or another, but like I didn't put two and two together that this is the thing I share with those kids. Mm -hmm. so like largely because I usually see class before I see ah. personal dynamic and, and always have. And that's been another big baggage thing as a, mm. as a teenager. That's so interesting. When the teacher basically says to her, like, I forget how he trivializes what issues she's going to have or basically says something to you, like like her suburban white girl struggles. I think white female suburban oppression. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I'm immediately on his side and I'm like, alright. Like, so, so that's the context I see, but I don't immediately see, like, mm -hmm. the personal context. And I think now in my life, I see that much more. I've, I'm much less weighed down by class resentment in a way that's actually super helpful for unpacking my mm. own bullshit. Cause a lot of the times your class resentment is just like, I'll hold on onto this and it'll drown out all of my other baggage. Mm. It's a good Marxism, right? Like hold on to this and you won't have other issues, even though you'll keep having those other issues. <laughs> 
anyway, sorry, Sambridi, you were before I went down that wild rabbit hole you were about to talk about sex and teenagers in this movie and in i'd love to talk about that yes and like what we talk about when we talk about sex mm. and kids what we talk about what in teenagers i'm sorry specifically and then what we perceive the difference between that conversation as portrayed in the late 90s mm. was and what it is now oh my god i was watching this the rewatch i did two rewatchings, and it was so refreshing to or, or it was exciting, rather, to watch that scene of Kat and Bianca on the bed and Kat is sharing, is being transparent with Bianca. Like, hey, this is what mm-hmm. happened. You know, I was projecting my own fear onto you instead of communicating with you and meeting you mm-hmm. as an emotional peer. That little interaction of when she's telling her the story of like, you know, it was right after mom left and we, and she just kind of gestured and kind of averted her eyes and could, didn't mm-hmm. even have the words to say we had sex, but that was the obvious mm-hmm. implication. And it was almost weightier because it, it had to be implied. Like she couldn't even talk about it. Yeah. And Bianca definitely received it as a bigger deal. Like, oh my God. Mm. But there was no shame in that statement. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was so refreshed. Yeah. She never like took on this burden of, of shame around that, even as she was talking to her sister about how this dick bag reacted and then subsequently hurt her. And she was traumatized by that. But it mm-hmm. wasn't around the decision to have sex. Mm-hmm. It was around the ramifications of having sex with a dick bag. Right. You know, which, you know, who hasn't been there? Right. And the nice thing is that we know, we've known Joey for this entire movie. And so, we, like, we are very aware of many reasons why he would be not an ideal candidate for being the first person that you have sex with and like she doesn't have to explain that because you can just be like oh yeah Joey there's like an additional layer of nuance to all of those great points which is she has sex and then decides she doesn't want to have sex more yes which is not an option that's presented to teenage girls by the way I remember always learning it is like you start to have sex Right. And then you were just continually having sex for the rest of your life. And it's like, Haha, yes, no, <laughs> that's the decision my husband made. I always remember being bowled over. He had sex for the first time and then he didn't for like five more years, not out of trauma or anything. It was like, oh, this isn't for me right now. Right. And the idea of teenage boys not being driven entirely by hormones yes. is like so foreign to just any media depiction of them. And it's like, yeah, they're hormonal, but also like. So are teenage girls in a way that I think is under-recognized. Oh, and I think if we could recognize that, like, teenage boys, teenage girls, like, all genders of teen just get really horny because they are teens. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, but, like, it, it's not just teenage boys. No. And I think maybe then we could be like, yeah, and teenage boys also do other stuff and they have emotions and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, that conversation where Kat reveals that is so nuanced because she's also using this as an opportunity to talk with her sister and essentially say, to point out a lot of the things that we're saying without saying it explicitly, but then to say like, look, it's kind of your blind eagerness not to have sex, like having sex, whatever, that's that's neither here nor there, but like your blind eagerness is like what is setting up a situation that Joey, like people like Joey look to take advantage of. Mm. 
Mm. Sure. Like if you want to do this, Mm -hmm. that's great. But like, make sure you're doing it in sort of the right context because they can smell that weird, like predatory people, not they as in men or the Joey's, but like Mm -hmm. the predatory people smell that and they jump onto it. Right. And so she's like, if this is something that you're into, that's great, whatever. And then that leaves her for Joseph Gordon-Levitt, not because he's like a nice guy, but because he does not seem inherently predatory Mm -hmm. in a way that Joey does. And Mm -hmm. she seems like she's going to be happy. And I think if I were, you know, if I were watching this 10 years ago, I might be cynical and say she's going to be happy because she's going with the guy who like, she's not going to have sex with. But like, I think it's more like she's going with the guy who is not treating her like he's hunting her down. They are going to have sex and there's probably going to be in your eyes or something playing in the background. I hope so. (laughs) So much Peter Gabriel just dripping. So much Peter Gabriel. (laughs) Well, and I hear you describing like the more that we talk about this, the more I hear a polarity of people are either they're making decisions inside of fear. They're making decisions outside of fear. And I think with Kat, her whole arc gets to show us through her own exposition, but also, you know, how, how she teaches her sister and talks to her sister, how not to do that. You know, how there's, there's another option. She's not saying that bad things don't exist, but she's also not saying like her dad, you know, bad things are everywhere and you're going to get railed and you're going to get pregnant. She's saying, she's like taking this neutral high road and saying, yes, bad things do exist. It's important to be informed. It's important to be alert and have a good time. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you are a teenager. Sarah, I didn't think about it until you just said it. it. And it's been in front of me my entire life. I didn't think about the fact that the way that we talk about sex, which is like you just you have it and then the fire hydrant is sort of open because they're related to moral panics. But it's the same framework as drugs. Right. It's the same framework as like you like smoke mm. pot once and now and now you're a drug addict and there's no stopping it. It's yeah. Gateway. Yeah. Rather than like every time you have sex, it can stand alone. I mean, I do know from personal experience that like pot can be a gateway to like more pot. But like, whatever. <laughs> but I just realized just now, like, that Kat actually has done that thing that I think really always happens in intimate relationships where she, like, accidentally did the thing she was trying to do, like, the opposite way because she was, like, <laughs> you know, trying to be this example of, like, you don't have to do what people expect. Like, you should do whatever you want. And then by, you know, living that way for three years demonstrated to Bianca that, like, that's no fun, you know? (laughs) Bianca, as a younger sibling, can look at someone going slightly ahead of her through adolescence and being like, well, I don't want to do that Mm. either. Mm. Well, you, to to your point on, you know, uh, Kat doing the thing that she didn't, in the way that she didn't really set out to do, all of our ideas, they just start as ideas, right? They're they're removed from us. Mm. And, And then when we start to embody those ideas we find that they have their own nuance to them and it's not just this or that right and and it takes that (laughs) self-compassion and surrounding yourself with people who will also be compassionate towards you as you process this experiment of living out your ideas and that's the goal right that's the goal that we can grab on to this ideal this idea that we we really want to embody and as we go it becomes greater than than what we ever thought that it could be and it and it serves us and i think it's done that for cat 
as Kat's doing with kind of redirecting this trauma into being steely to not mm, let people mm-hmm. in, like she, she's ultimately kind of creating a sanctuary, a sanctuary for herself that once this sanctuary, you know, it's tidy because it's a movie, but like once the, once the sanctuary is not needed anymore, she's able to take, you know, new ideas and grow with those. And we let people in as we maybe are ready to adopt the ideas and adopt mm-hmm. the values that those people are going to bring to us that we might not have beforehand when we were not letting anybody in. And we get to see that rare and beautiful moment when someone kind of lets their guard down and lets somebody else in. And then uh, that somebody else in is late 90s Heath Ledger. Thank God. We've talked a lot about, you know, Kat's arc and and mined a lot of gold from that. How has Patrick changed you know how how what's patrick's Mm. arc what journey do we see him go on so i was thinking recently about a moment in time which was the day that the world learned that heath ledger had just died Mm. i remember i feel like this is one of those generational memories um because it was just so shocking and so sad and so sad partly because he had through this movie specifically, been so important to the adolescences of a lot of kids, basically, and and to the aspirations of girls growing up, kind of learning what they were allowed to expect or to ask for Mm -hmm. um, when they were looking for someone to let in, basically. And something that when I was talking about watching this movie on Twitter, something someone mentioned that really struck (laughs) me right in the heart was that, like, they love the part where Patrick goes to the bar where Kat's band is playing, like the band that she likes, Mm -hmm. so he can run into her there and be like, yeah, I'm a fan of alternative feminist (laughs) punk and stuff. Kat seems like sort of in the borderlands of punk. Like, they're not committing with her character. She has like a Gitz poster and stuff like that. She has two Gitz posters. We are informed that she likes Bikini Kill because of his recon. I don't think so. she aspires to you don't see it i see her being a gigantic as we see her being in this movie letters to cleo fan my first concert by the way but um you know i mean who knows a lot of people end up finding i think cat would find bikini kill later on tumblr Mm -hmm. and be sad that she missed out so hard when she was a teenager yes yeah you just can't do all the alternative things at once even if it is (laughs) the 90s no matter what your wall of posters says yes but he goes to see the band that she likes And anyway, so the person commenting on this was like, yeah, I just love that part because I, for so many boyfriends, like learned about the bands they liked and like tried to like them and no guy ever did that for me. And I was like, yeah, normalized guys doing that. Like it seems very small, but, Hmm. but anyway, so on that morning, it was 2008 and I was in a suite of dorm rooms visiting my friend Brianna at Occidental. And so I could hear like people throughout the suite, like in the different bedrooms as they got the news, like on their computers, queuing up the part where Patrick Verona Mm. sings in front of everyone to apologize to Kat. And that was like, that was what I naturally wanted to watch. And then I could hear people throughout the day, like playing that video, Mm. because like that's the video like that in that moment felt to that particular group of young women that that like summed up what the very specific thing that like out of a very large life had been offered to the teen girls of America. And 
we were very grateful for that. And I feel as if that scene kind of shows his growth as a character because we open with him as this very, mm. almost like like a teen, dirty, hairy, you know, like <laughs> a scuffy, hairy, this quiet, enigmatic, like there's all these legends about him. He's kind of like Mad Max, mm. all his instincts boiled down to one, survive, <laughs> you know, survive high school. And then he like opens himself up and like does something really silly and... Hmm. He say, what is the title of the song that he sings? I just know it as I love you, is baby. Is it Can't Take My Eyes yeah. Off of You? Yes, I think it's yeah. Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. That's it. <laughs> Which is like a very cheesy, like, I don't know if Wayne Newton sang it, but it's his kind of song. Mm-hmm. It's like a sort of classic, cheesy, Vegas lounge act kind of a thing. And like he just gets out there and like joyfully and rebelliously debases himself for the woman he he likes. Mm. And it's great. <laughs> One of my other favorite teen movies from this time, although I don't even know if it qualifies, but it's Orange County. Oh, oh yeah, that's I totally love... a teen movie. I love that movie. But Orange County, clearly in the way that this movie was, was backed by some record labels. And there was like a weird, quick synchronized dance scene. Yeah. Yes. Come, my lady. Come, come, my baby. You my butterfly. Sugar, Sugar baby. baby. <laughs> It feels so out of place. And what I like about this movie is there's a logic behind every time that happens. Like, Cat at the Party is dancing drunk on a table. There is not a synchronized dance. And when Heath Ledger sings that song and the band plays, we already know about him that he called in a favor to Letters to Cleo. Or we will know that to play a song. So we know that this guy is very transactional. We saw him paying off the band leader. We saw him slipping this guy some cash. Yeah, which is great. We know that this is a plausible thing. And that's significant because he's not just vulnerable as if he was like i'm gonna be vulnerable in this moment he plotted the largest and grand gestures can be a real fucking zero-sum game and i've been in a couple of them (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry oh god it was you learn you know (laughs) his grand gesture is so well considered well well thought out there's an audience and the audience is significant because he's also dispelling the gigantic myth that is him being a whatever, like a, maybe a convicted murderer, porno actor. Duck eater. So yeah, exactly. It means a lot more to me now than I think it did then mm. because, I don't know, it's, it's beautiful. And and I the same way, I, I know exactly where and when I was when I found out that Heath Ledger died. And it was significant because... You know, he seemed beautiful and fascinating in, in, in a lot of the ways that he was. And just even, you know, obviously what he did with the Joker, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, is, is incredible. Mm-hmm. He subsidized a lot of artists and bands out of pocket in ways that like people did. Mm, yeah. But also it was like one of the first times where I was like, oh, I'm going to fucking die. Yeah. Outside of just conceptually knowing it or acknowledging it or like my dad was always had one foot in the grave. Like I was like, oh, me, like I am a young person Mm, who has a lot of these same interests and I am going to die. Mm. And also, like, I remember at the time, of course, it inevitably a rumor started that like it was because of the Joker (laughs) and he just played the Joker and the role was so dark that he couldn't come back from oh, the dark. Jesus, and that's yes. why, which even at the time I was like, that's bullshit. And of course now we know that it was basically just random combined mm-hmm. drug toxicity. And it's like, don't take sleeping pills and also drink or also take something else. Cause it's just, yeah. you will intend to do nothing bad to yourself and something bad will happen. Cause drugs do that. And like, 
Just either drink or take pills. Just don't do both. <laughs> totally. That's not a moral statement. That is a statement as a person who yeah. is shocked that he has not died by the same reasons for the same intake. It's just a practical suggestion. So many people have that story of like, I should be dead, you know, because I did this and this at the same time. I've taken that concoction that we heard yeah. about. And uh, yeah, I'm shocked. Yeah. And which is sadder. And I think that we create that stupid Joker story because it's sadder because like, He's amazing in that role, but, like, that's not a role that you need to die for to be able to get if you're just, like, a great actor, which is what he was. Like, he was an actor who was taken from his family and the people who loved him just for, like, no real reason, just sort of chance and bad luck, you know? And that just is so much worse. Yeah. I was an ER nurse at the time, and I was—we were on shift, and I remember hearing about it, and— I also remember not believing it. Like, it was the first celebrity death that I remember encountering where I was like, no, that can't be right. And, like, spent a couple of minutes between patients, like, on the computer looking into it, surrounded by mortality, surrounded by people dying. And, you know, I I wasn't in the place where you were. I'm very aware of my own mortality it's it's cliche, I think, but some people don't get to die. Some people are so have so much charisma, have so much sparkle, for lack of a better term, that mm-hmm. they they just can't go. Mm-hmm. I thought I actually had a conversation with my mom, and I asked her. I was like, "Well, how did you feel when Janis Joplin died? How did you feel when Jimi Hendrix?" And like she then she like proceeded to list like a half a dozen more who died Mm. in the same age group as Heath Ledger. And I was struck with this, like, oh, well, she's she watched JFK die. Mm -hmm. I think there are certain generations or certain many generations that get a brunt of this this type of lesson and this type of opportunity for reflection. And then there are, like, these many generations that just don't. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he died, and then when did Amy Winehouse die? Ooh, uh, 2011. But we had like a couple of those mm-hmm. where it was just they were young. Yeah, they were in their mid to late 20s, and I think that that was like our time to get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It was one of the things where like I never would have acknowledged it then. I would have been like, oh, you know, someone from our generation gone too soon. Mm-hmm. It's no, it's like I was on a lot of drugs, drinking a lot, you know, going in and out of phases like that. And I think like I never could have because of how good that brain is at compartmentalizing things. I never could have been like, this is scary because I'm seeing a picture of what could happen to someone who has the same interests Mm. and is, has illustrated an interest in portraying different kinds of artistry and vulnerability in ways that maybe resonate like all of that. And I was like, Oh, dead. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, good game. Uh, I should probably commit the next eight years to getting my shit together. I mean, I watched green room the other day, Alex, on your recommendation and sun pretty. Have you seen that movie? Um, it's a horror movie where like this punk band, like they go to play a gig in Oregon I might add, and then realize that like the uh, venue is just run by a bunch of Nazis and then no. they accidentally see a murder and they get trained. It's great. Oh, I have to see it. But the final girl of it is Anton Yelchin. And so I was watching it and the entire oh. time, like every five minutes, I would be like, God, he's oh, great. So and I'd great. be like, oh my God. Cause like he got killed by a rolling yeah. Jeep, you know? And like that's one that like you really can't be like, he got too deep into the character in green room it's like no like sometimes 
once again, like just stupid things happen. And it's just so weird to watch this movie about someone playing someone who as their whole thing in the movie, like survives <laughs> and then realizing that in real life they were mm -hmm. killed, not by a bunch of Nazis, but by just, you know, a factory defect essentially. Yeah. And horribly so. So overall, like how has your relationship with the movie changed? And I guess, you know, outside of that beautiful elevator pitch Sarah gave earlier, like what would your pitch to someone be to say like, hey, this is a movie you should you should check out again? I see more maturity. I was able to access more maturity from the movie because I'm more mature. I have a lot more experience now than I did, Jesus, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And therefore I'm able to, to appreciate it. the first reviewing I was, um, I was viewing it from this place of very defensive post Me Too. Mm. And I'm like, why'd they have to make her show her tits? That's so weird. It's so, but like, I was like cringing mm -hmm. on the, on the, on the chair when I was watching this, but also I was able to have the, I was able to sit in the place to like watch myself cringe. Mm. Like, well, mm. this is a, a product of its time and we're really different. And how would you do it differently? Et cetera. I, the second reviewing, I was able to take off some of that defensiveness and just relax into it and really appreciate, number one, how it elevates Shakespearean models, how it elevates Shakespearean, Shakespeare's storytelling. Mm -hmm. The storytelling they did in, you know, a sub 90 minute movie or around 90 minute movie, mm -hmm. I will say this, what I think Shakespeare intended to do. Imagine what Shakespeare would do if he had these tools. Yeah. I mean, it would be, we would get the weirdest God. stuff. <laughs> the fan fiction that man would write. <laughs> this movie is, it is accessible. It is erudite. It is emotional. It is intelligent. It is able to mm. play on stereotypes without pandering. Mm to to the audience with the stereotypes it's able to and it's and it doesn't even get like gross winky face ironic no it's very sincere it's a very very sincere movie and also these teens are allowed to be funny funny in the way that teenagers are actually funny yeah. and also i have to add that we have a character here who is very close to my heart because she is the kind of teen that i once was which is like I don't want to date any of these teenage boys either, but rather than being like a get poster rebel about it, I am just going to be in a relationship with William Shakespeare. You're involved. We're involved. We're involved. And the movie was like, cool. If you want to be in a relationship with Shakespeare, you will find some guy who will pretend to be Shakespeare for you. You deserve mm. that. I think that that's the closest teenager to a modern teenager. The Shakespeare girl? Yeah, the Shakespeare girl. Yeah, you are on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and let me buy you a dress. Yes. <laughs> and learn calligraphy, apparently. The calligraphy, yes. <laughs> this is my favorite. Is he delivers the line and he goes, that's Macbeth, right? <laughs> Like, he doesn't know the line. He just learned it's so good. He's wonderful. And also, this never occurred to me, but I was like, wait a minute. 
David Kremholtz's character just is the spirit of is Shakespeare himself yes. in this world. Just the smart aleck go-between who like is sort of narrating and being made fun of by everybody. Like I didn't know the man, but like that's Shakespeare. Yes, yeah. He's kind of like the narrator, kind of the puck. Yes. He was in the in crowd of like the stock traders and now he's out. Yes. <laughs> and he has to do schemes. He's got like a vaguely criminal <laughs> quality, which Shakespeare Absolutely. also seem to have had. I also love, this is such a random thing, but I just love that they have this in. They never go back to it. It is never relevant again, uh, I don't think. And I've seen this movie a lot of times. There is a cowboy click at the school. I know! (laughs) (laughs) The closest they've ever been to a cow is at McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) And you're just like, cool, you know? That actually touched on something that was a thing. Like, I remember, like, in my DNA, not necessarily in my brain, but in my DNA, is the micro clicks. Mm -hmm. Yes. The clicks that lasted for maybe six weeks. And then they would, like, move on to something. Like, we're so—I love teenagers because they are so—they're so passionate and they are so—they will throw themselves wholeheartedly into this one tiny thing and then be—and then not hold on to it like it's—like it has to last forever. They allow themselves to move on to the next thing. I think that's part of why I love teenagers. (laughs) Somebody has to. (laughs) (laughs) And they go hard. They like go into things, which I I love. There's so many kids in this movie that just like are doing what they're doing and they're doing it in an extra big way. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that this is a time capsule is like, I remember I went to something for high school and this was in 1998. By some fluke, I had an email address And I remember there were a hundred kids at the thing and I went around and asked everyone if they had an email address so I could email them, which is the fucking nerdiest thing in in retrospect. And 11 of them had an email address, which is reflective Mm. of who was just on the internet. And like the thing about pre-internet clicks is the archetype was so clunky because all that you could get was just what was in a magazine one time maybe yes. or like the white Rasta kids who were into Bob Marley who existed in every high school in one way or another even in my high school in fucking western rural Maine <laughs> you know because like the idea of like what is quote Rasta and it's extraordinarily racist now that we all know better that they can be quote unquote Rasta is it's a relatively easy pattern to follow very shallowly if you have no other information (laughs) yes so we are also being graced by our second astrologer guest and so i would love to hear any thoughts you have on cosmic 10 things i hate about you from that perspective (laughs) oh i love that cat there has to be there's definitely some scorpionic tendencies there with scorpio it's go deep or go home. Hmm. Scorpio don't fuck with anything that is not, well, like what I said, you know, it's cosmic and then it's personal, right? Let's get right to the cosmic. So she's, she's looking, she's a teenager and she's looking for some, some depth and she knows herself. There's also going to be some, some drama and some darkness there and some black panties that don't necessarily (laughs) mean that she's, she's down for sex. So there's some playfulness, Mm -hmm. you know, some light there that can be maybe some Aries fire. Oh, she's she's definitely got some Gemini too mm. because she's she's a writer. She loves the music. She loves Shakespeare. She appreciates that. And damn, she's good on her feet verbally. Mm-hmm. She's very, very good on her feet verbally. And dancing to Biggie. Also. Uh-huh. 
Much better than she was in Save the Last Dance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I thought about that. Um, and then Patrick, he's got that earthy Taurus to him. Yay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, he definitely has some, some masculine cancer. Mm. And I think... Sagittarius. He's a watery guy. I can yeah, see that. He's got a wee bit of Sag. We asked this before about Moonstruck. What would this movie's like what signs do you see in this movie? Oh. Like if this movie were a person, what do you see here? Sagittarius Sun, Libra Moon, and Leo, Leo rising. Didn't we also say that Moonstruck is a Sagittarius? Yes, I, I believe that we did. Sagittarius is a good sign for movies then. It's great for having fun. In particular, the thing that these two movies share is a very similar energy. Mm. Moonstruck is itself kind of a Shakespearean structure and a plot. It's like, this is happening, this is happening, this person's with this person, mm-hmm. this person's with this mm-hmm. person. They're having realizations at the end. At the end, everyone's cool. Like, they have a very similar structure. And they all go to the big day. The big oatmeal at the end. Whatever, (laughs) but they figure it out. (laughs) Yes, the big oatmeal. (laughs) We know who the dad is, but who is the daddy? Okay, um, just so I'm particularly clear, like, who's the daddy? Like, who... Who owns this movie? Like, whose movie is this? Oh, that's good. That's a good one. That's Yeah, this means many things, and I guess it's, like, a way of figuring out like how the daddy is in the eye of the beholder, you know? Mm. So, like, something we've talked about often is, like, the daddy is the person who has like the most actual sort of like innate authority or the person that you are thirsty for or the person who is secretly writing a romance novel the whole time. Like it could be anyone. It's really, it's a, it's very personal. (laughs) Okay. My initial reaction, Allison Janney is the daddy of this, (laughs) of this for sure. We have not talked about once, but yes. (laughs) I know. Part, too. <laughs> she needs her own her own cutaway episode. So for me, I would say the daddy is David Krumholtz's character, Michael, because he moves in all of the circles and he is always himself. Like it's not that he doesn't change. He obviously changes. He blossoms, but he's dependable. He's charismatic. He's right there. And he involves himself in all of these separate stories that obviously intersect through him in such an endearing way. And he helps everybody. Yeah. And I love that he's just like himself in public, like clearly because he doesn't know how to put on a facade. Yeah. The part where he's like, I'm thinking of getting a Tercel. It's like, here's a guy who has just no way of figuring out what would actually be a good line. So he's just going to be stuck with being exactly who he is, which yes. is great because then he has to end up with someone who actually appreciates him for being the maniac who's willing to impersonate Shakespeare Mm, that he is. I love that. Isn't there a thing where he brings condoms to the party? Yes. And yet he's like, he's confident in himself. Like, I'm going to need these. Totally. (laughs) Sarah, who's your daddy? Mm, I would agree that the daddy is is David Krumholtz, but I also think, you know, we got to say that Heath Ledger's character, Patrick, is a daddy in this because he... I don't know. This is also a movie about secure teens, right? This is a movie mm. about teen. It like mm. everybody grows and the people who don't grow get punched in the face by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> no, actually they get punched by Bianca, which is a great part. On a different note, I also want to appreciate the moment where 
Cameron is driving Bianca home from the party where she has kind of ditched him for Joey and then been ditched by Joey and ended up back with Cameron. And he's like, have you always been so selfish? And she's like, yes. Mm. You know, just like every character in this movie, you know, the ones that we love, which is most of them, like when they get called out, they're kind of like, that's true. Yeah. You know, yeah. like people have to like acknowledge that they don't have it all figured out. And this is a, just a really lovely movie to watch because it's kind of about what can happen when people in various relationships and in community with each other are able to do that. And so, you know, Patrick is also that because he's a young man who is able to, first of all, accept that he needs to embarrass himself in order to make up for someone feeling that he embarrassed her mm. doing the the non-criminal thing <laughs> which is you know I, I i don't think that's a laudatory plot line but i think that is like a feeling people feel you know like if i'm focused on feeling rejected by somebody then the question is like he knows that you don't argue with a feeling you like honor that someone is having it and that's how you show that you care mm. about them and i appreciate that yeah yeah they're both good guys like this is also like a movie about like what if teenage boys had like substance and character and integrity which they do mm -hmm. right and it's not about being a quote good guy which became its own predatory trope like the following decade yeah these guys are just who they are yeah all right what are your what are your parting thoughts my closing thoughts are that you know this movie is so beloved and i mentioned on twitter that i was watching it and immediately people jumped in and just started quoting it and there aren't that many movies that are loved in that way, that, like, people know them by heart. A lot of movies come out and, like, can maybe make a lot of money, and no one will remember a single line of dialogue from them a year later because they just go straight through you. But some movies are loved that way, and I think that if you're curious about what that secret sauce is, I, to me, the answer is that, like, this is a movie that loves and takes seriously the emotional lives of teenagers. They're all fleshed-out characters, and they're all displaying a capacity for growth in a way that feels real and like still matters to me and still feels relevant in terms of like we all I think through our lives struggle with learning how to own the ways that our attempts to keep ourselves and the people we love safe have led us to make bad decisions or maybe a whole string of bad decisions and we're constantly being asked to own that and work on it by accepting it. And I love that this movie not only gives teenagers a little bit of dignity and like, you know, a lot of great banter, but shows them using their emotional toolkits. I love that. Piggybacking on that, I feel very lucky to have been a teenager when this movie came out. It's almost like I can I can receive some of that respect vicariously, mm. even though, you know, that wasn't my experience as a teenager. And that wasn't my experience as a teenager to ask for that either. I didn't even see that as an option personally. But through this mm. movie, people are allowed to grow and people are allowed to change. And it doesn't necessarily have to be by anybody's particular standards. These people change by their own standards and they are rewarded for that. Mm -hmm. They're rewarded for being more and more themselves and not in a an egotistical island type way that only helps it. They're, they're more themselves. And as they're doing that, they're helping each other. I was kind of watching the dad plot line, especially, of course, this time and being like, like, 
is this satisfying? Does this work dramatically? And and I really think it does. And to me, it, this movie also works because the dad in the end, like, lets Kat go. She wants to go to Sarah Lawrence. He doesn't want her to go. And he finally is like, you must live your life. Go far away if you must. Because unlike your mom, like, if I let you go, then I think you'll come back to me. Yeah, because uh, we shared that little smile when I asked you if you had made anyone cry today. And you said not yet. <laughs> And that's such a good example of a thing I would not have been able to see before because of being fucked up by class consciousness stuff as I'm, you know, I'm like, must be nice. Like, you know, getting some money to go. Their house is like ostentatiously gorgeous. Like it must be noted. I was watching this and I was like, what would these movies be like if everyone's house looked like garbage? Because I think that we would (laughs) lose a lot of the appeal, but it is what it is. So (laughs) that guy, as you just said, the dad let go of something Mm -hmm. and like, ideally if it keeps going in that path he might gain a little something as a result and hopefully that something is a relationship with his daughters in their 20s yeah oh yeah well and also like if bianca's first boyfriend is cameron who learned french for her like i think he's gonna realize maybe his ideas about what he's protecting his daughters (laughs) from are a little bit irrational yeah if i'm gonna watch a movie with teen girls in the 90s they are all gonna end up dead or happy yeah that's true that's true (laughs) can't take my eyes off of you you'd be like heaven to touch I want to hold you so much That long last love has arrived And I thank God I'm alive You're just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you Pardon the way that I stare There's no one else to compare The sight of you leaves me everybody that is it for this episode of why our dads thank you so so much for joining us thank you carolyn kendrick for uh, producing the show making it sound great and for your musical contribution this go around 
Carolyn has a EP called Tear Things Apart if you're interested in hearing more of her music. This episode, she covered Can't Take My Eyes Off You, which, of course, appears in uh, the wonderful 10 Things I Hate About You. It was a 1967 song written by Bob Crew and Bob Gaudio. Um, actually, my my uh, <laughs> helped make a short documentary on Bob Crew not long ago. Very, very short for an event that was honoring him. He has some main connections and ties. Thank you so much, Carolyn. The show always sounds great, and you make that possible. What what should you know? What should you know, dear listener? Next week, we're going to talk about Batman the Dark Knight. For you people who take these things very seriously, I don't think the title Batman is in it. It's, it's that one that came out that had Heath Ledger in it. <laughs> so we're going to do two Heath Ledger movies back to back. Totally unplanned and unintentional, but that's a thing that's going to happen. And we're going to cover that with our friend Aubrey Gordon, who is the co-host of Maintenance Phase, which is in the You're Wrong About family of podcasts. We are so, so very much looking forward to doing that. Again, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash wiredads. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram. Um, both Sarah and I are in both of those places. Uh, I am on TikTok. <laughs> so if you're looking for an old man in the wrong media, that's where I'm at. I think that that's it for this episode. Thank you so, so much for joining us. As always, we just have the best time doing this and, and I very much appreciate that you join us. It really means a good deal to uh, Sarah, Carolyn and me. So thank you so much. <laughs>